0: Hello and welcome to A Couple of Europhiles. My name is Bailey Alexander and I'm here with Francis. Today we're going to discuss taking in Ukrainian refugees, traveling to Turkey, and covering the current crisis in Ukraine. Here at the podcast, we explore cultural realities and dissonance. We find them worth exploring because we've experienced so many. We've lived in an awful lot of countries. We've lived a pretty nomadic lifestyle. Actually, I don't think I've ever asked you, Francis, on the podcast, but how many countries have you lived in?
1: I don't even know. I've been to every place except South America, just about.
0: Safe to say a lot, probably well over 100. Anyway, so before we discuss the history that got got us into this recent catastrophe, let's review the previous week when we received a call from Oleg. Francis worked with Oleg a few years back, and because we live here in northern Italy, Oleg, who was now near Kiev, or Kiev as they say, asked if we could take in his family for one night as they were on the move. They were now near Slovenia and they were heading towards Genoa. So of course we said yes, but Francis wanted to know their destination. Oleg said Portugal, so we suggested they stay with us here in Italy for one night, and Francis called his father-in-law in France to secure a place for the following night. Ed, his father, said of course they can stay here. So Francis was texting with Oleg and his wife on Telegram, and everyone decided the best route was to head straight to France, because it would require far fewer hours on the road. And we all know the price of gas these days, so it made sense. And our in-laws have plenty of beds for everyone. So Francis worked with Oleg's wife on the route they would take. It was uh, basically a little convoy of two cars, including Oleg's sister and friend and three children. Six Ukrainians in total on the move. We offered to take them to lunch en route, and Francis and I drove around Lake Garda towards Verona. But the Internet was spotty on the road with this little convoy of two cars. So periodically we received texts from Oleg Then my father-in-law Ed was included as the Ukrainians were moving closer to the south of France. They made it safely to southern France that night, where my Italian mother-in-law had a plate of pasta waiting for them on the table, and Francis checked in the following morning as they prepared sandwiches for their next journey. Another night was offered in the south of France, but like I said, this family was on the move, and Francis got them online and helped with apps for better internet while they were on the road. And I just think it's amazing to think we were celebrating Francis' father's 90th birthday the previous week. We were in the south of France, and that six Ukrainian refugees would be spending the night in those same beds the following week, Uh, basically just to show how it does come close to home and quickly. So, Francis, hey, let's dive right into the history and how we got here.
1: How did we get here indeed? When you're saying, how did we get here? You're probably asking, how did we get to the point where Ukraine is in a conflict? Ukraine is in a conflict because when the end of the Cold War happened in uh, 89, the uh, Soviet Union collapsed and the Americans promised not to expand NATO eastward because they were understandably nervous, much as the Americans were with the Monroe Doctrine with the missiles in Cuba. However, all of the Eastern European countries who had been essentially oppressed by the Soviets against their will. They all were desperate to join NATO, and many of them did, and they also joined the European Union. However, Ukraine is much closer to Russia with a much larger border than the others. And Ukraine is, is kind of a special case because during the Soviet Union, it was part of the Soviet Union, and it suffered large migrations of people. Stalin liked to move people around. And a large number of Russians, Russian people, moved to Ukraine, uh, particularly in the east, in the Donbass. And Crimea, of course, was always Russian up until uh, Khrushchev administratively decided to add it to the Ukraine SSR. And and so those territories are majority Russian-speaking, right? At the time when Ukraine split off from Soviet Union and became a country, they assumed the same borders. As the Ukraine SSR, much of which had also had always been under Russian control prior to the existence of the Soviet Union, when the Ukrainians had a situation where where they were trying to decide whether they were going to join Russia's East Asian Union or Eurasian Union, or whether they were going to join the EU, the president who had been elected in an election previously, uh, Yanukovych basically decided to align with Russia rather than the EU, which was particularly unpopular in Kiev. So there was a lot of demonstrations, uh, the Euromaidan, and eventually he was hounded out of Kiev and ran to Russia for asylum. Technically, this was not done in a constitutionally appropriate way. And you know this is a bone of contention between Russia and uh, Ukraine. Although the majority of Ukrainians wanted him gone, they didn't impeach him correctly. They didn't elect him out. They just threw him out with riots, which were backed by both the EU and the Americans, uh, expanding their sphere of influence, which is viewed by Russia as a, a a big deal. So at that time, the Crimea decided that they definitely wanted to stay with Russia, and had a referendum to do do that. And Russia had a a vote in their parliament to accept them. And they annexed the Ukraine against the will of Ukraine. They annexed the Crimea Uh, in the Donbass. They didn't understand why they didn't get to do the same. Now, Russia doesn't have any really strategic interests in the Donbass other than defending uh, Russian-speaking people from oppression. So the Donbass revolted. And basically said, we don't agree with the laws limiting the use of Russian in schools. We don't agree with Kiev because Kiev threw out the president without a proper election. And we're not going to participate in further elections. We want to be autonomous. So they fought. They got militia. They threw the Ukrainian army out, which was uh, relatively weak. Ukraine tried to get them back. The Russians supported with materiel and weapons the independent uh, Oblast of, of the Donbass, and the situation was more or less in a freeze for a number of years. Germany and France negotiated with Russia and Ukraine in a format called the Minsk Agreements, and they agreed that Ukraine would allow the Donbass to be autonomous, still part of the Ukraine, but with a lot of local government uh, and so forth and so on. This is actually not that dissimilar from how Scotland is managed with its own parliament, uh, even though it's still part of the UK. And it's not that dissimilar how in Italy we have Alto Adige, which is a German-speaking province of uh, of Italy with special autonomous prerogatives, right? They're still part of Italy, but uh, they get to speak German, they get to manage their own taxes, and so forth and so on. So, you know, what the Donbass was asking and what the Minsk agreements agreed wasn't that far away from similar situations already present in Europe. But Ukraine did not accept these and they wanted to get the Russians completely out and retake the Donbass and not give them the autonomy that they'd agreed to give them in the Minsk agreements, which arguably they were pressured to accept rather than actually accepted it. You know, So they do have an argument as well. Now, this comes to a head because Putin views the expansion of NATO into Ukraine and the positioning of NATO troops and American missiles as existential threats to Russia. And he made these points over and over and over again. And he said, I want to discuss them. I want to basically make it so that Ukraine doesn't become part of NATO, doesn't get to station NATO troops on my border, and gives the autonomy that they promised to give in the Minsk agreements to the Donbass and recognize the will of the Crimea. That was Putin's point. And everybody ignored his point and said, you have to withdraw your troops, you have to not do this, you have to not do that, you got to do all this stuff, otherwise we'll get angry with you, but we completely don't want to discuss any of the things that you have stated are existential threats to Russia. So Putin essentially lost it, and basically decided no one was going to listen to him, and you know, when, when he was saying it's an existential threat, it means I don't care what else is going to happen, I want this resolved. And he understood perfectly well that uh, he was going to get sanctioned and severely penalized for taking the actions that he did, which, let me be clear, are completely the wrong actions. Italy repudiates war as an instrument of policy, and it's such a 20th century slash 19th century thing to do. Today, we have global supply chains. We're all linked or linked. It doesn't make any sense to fight each other. The Ukraine and Russia have many, many similarities.
0: And hey, let's not forget about some of this cast of characters involved. Like Victoria Newland uh, and the tape that was leaked in 2014 when she was meddling. I think Newland was the assistant U.S. Secretary of State. And since she's had to apologize, but only after this infamous tape was leaked. This conversation which proved little doubt that she and the U.S. ambassador were discussing a mini coup and wanted to influence, deeply influence Ukraine's government because apparently that's what these interventionists do. I mean, hey, not a bene, Newland worked, uh, she worked for Cheney, she was a staunch neoconservative, and uh, she was part of the cast of characters involved in the Iraq war, and we all know how that turned out. So, once again, we have the neocons meddling in the worst possible way, and I get excited about it for for many reasons, but Newland also felt compelled to say F.U. to the E.U., not that it was germane to the conversation it didn't even lend to the conversation it's just what she thinks and wants known so anyway I- she's I a bit know. of a
1: nut job but let's be clear she was uh, when she when she orchestrated the Maidan, she was in the obama administration state department and uh, she then got kicked out by trump and then she came back with the biden administration and she's now back in the state department
0: it's just the neoconservatives the interventionists it basically
1: America used to be a country that minded its own business and took care of itself. George Washington basically said famously, We must avoid foreign entanglements and mind our own business and make sure that we're building the stuff for our citizens the best we can. The non interventionistness of America ended in the First World War. And since then, they've been intervening and and they feel that the entire world is on their shoulders to carry.
0: I don't know. I just wish Zelensky and Putin would get in a room. I mean, some of the terms proposed don't look that bad, but I do think the U.S. is encouraging Zelensky. And of course, we should support him in any way for his people. And he's become a hero. But gosh, even Israel said surrender. Then again, they're just thinking of the people. I think we should support, not encourage.
1: The, The issue is that America essentially has interventionist foreign policy. And Foreign policy appears to be done on a whiteboard somewhere in Washington, DC, where some, maybe neocon, maybe somebody else says, gosh, if only we, if we support the Ukraine, then, you know, this is going to happen. They're going to join the West and everything will be great. And Russia will back down and it will further our interests in the world. And, you know, this is what we think is going to happen. And they draw it all out on a whiteboard. And the issue is it never happens that way. Okay. It never happened that the Iraqi soldiers uh, gave up and the Iraqi people welcomed the Americans with open arms. It didn't happen with Gaddafi, which is now a big mess. It didn't happen in Georgia. And that's actually a very, that's a very close parallel. Georgia had a, a president in 2008 who was a Harvard grad. He spent most of his time in America. He uh, you know he was very American oriented, Shaqeshvil, and he really believed that if he told the Russians who were on his doorstep to get lost, that the 101st Airborne would arrive the next day and protect him, right? He really believed it. And he was led to believe that because when they talk to the Ukrainians, when they talk to the Georgians, the American foreign policy wonks say, oh, you know, if you join us, you know, you'll be part of the West, you're going to be supported. Will make you join the e u it's going to be great, and so forth and so on and the truth is you really shouldn't encourage people to pick fights with stronger neighbors when you're you are not willing to send your soldiers to bleed and die to defend them. It's all very well to say we support you morally and put all kinds of Ukrainian light fixtures on your buildings, but unless you're actually willing. To go toe to toe to the Russians when the Russians have already declared it's an existential crisis and they will fight you in order to prevent an existential crisis for them. You you, you can't encourage that because it doesn't happen that way. It's not a game that you're watching on TV and you say to one football team, you know, why don't you rush in there and sacrifice yourselves? And we're sitting here eating popcorn, right? You know, it's no good to actually encourage people to die when you're not willing to support them to the extent that you've misled them to believe that you will. That's the the bottom line. I support Ukraine. I I think it's a tragedy what's happening in the Ukraine. I, I wish the Ukrainians all the best, but it is somewhat predictable when Russia has made it crystal clear to everybody that was listening that they viewed the situation as existential for them. And their their beef is not having NATO on their doorstep. They already have NATO on their doorstep against the commitments of the United States back in uh, in 1989, in that they allowed the Estonians and so forth uh, to join NATO. But Ukraine was the ultimate red line. They made that clear. And now it's a big mess. Putin has backed down from his original uh, statements about denazification. He was willing to negotiate with the existing Ukrainian government. He just wants to make sure that they end up like Finland and Sweden, not members of NATO on his doorstep. And he wants to make sure that the people in the Donbass don't get shelled like the Ukrainians are currently being shelled by the Russians, as they have been to a lesser extent for the last seven years. So, you know, th- that, that's it. That doesn't sound like the actions of a madman or a Hitler. You know, I don't believe that fighting is the right way to make your point. But Louis Catorze, the Sun King, famously said that canon are the last argument of kings. If no one is listening to what you're saying in the diplomacy, then in the end, they'll start to listen when the shots start firing. And and that is sad and tragic, but that is also human nature. So, you know, I, I hope they resolve this quickly. I think the Israelis have the right idea. Get them in a room. Let them put their issues on the table. Ukraine deserves its independence. It deserves to be a member of EU eventually when they sort out their accession stuff. But they don't you know, deserve to basically create World War III and, and drag us all into it, right? We need to find a way to make peace. And, and Russia is not Iraq, is not Iran, is not Libya. Russia has major quantities of nuclear weapons. And, and Biden, very wisely, does not want the Americans to directly fight and start shooting Russians, because God only knows where that will end. Another point I'd make about this crisis is if you look at history, and I wish that all those guys with the whiteboards in Washington DC would do that, Russia has never backed down on existential threats in their entire thousand year history. They lost 25 million civilians in World War II, and they still didn't surrender. Okay nobody has ever lost that many civilians as as they have without without at least surrendering to save them, right? Russia is incapable of surrendering when it's talking about existential threats. So, you know, they'll back off out of Poland and other places where they're not wanted. And and people think that that's that. But when they feel that Russia itself is under threat, they're not going to back down. It's just not going to happen. So as soon as people wake up and realize this, the sooner we actually get to a point where we can get back to something resembling normality.
0: Sure. And also part of the problem is uh, that China and Russia, other countries are looking forward to a multipolar world, which is perhaps unfolding as we speak, whether we like it or not.
1: Part of the issue is whenever you listen to senators, not so much Biden, Biden's actually pretty much on top of it. But when you listen to some of the senators and congressmen in the US, none of whom have that much of a clue about geography and history. They always say, you know, what should our position be? How can we do whatever it is that we're going
0: to do? And you're sitting here going, like, sometimes it's just none of your business, you know? It's exactly what my favorite Italian barista tells me. It's none of our business. Of course, the energy wars are our business. So go ahead on that, Francis. Gas crisis,
1: right? They derive over 50% of their gas. From Russia, they were making gas a central part of their fight for climate change. So they closed down their coal-fired plants. The Germans closed down their nuclear plants uh, because the Greens don't like them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the plan was temporarily, for the next fifteen years or so, to rely on gas to actually heat houses and provide the energy necessary to run industry until they could get, you know. Renewables uh, to the point where they work. The Germans are investing a lot in hydrogen, but when you're trying to change fundamental energy mixes, it takes years. Right? It's a it's a 15 to 20 year strategy where you say, "Hey, I'm going to use nuclear fusion in 30 years, and I'm going to use uh, you know so, super solar power things that work, and we'll figure out how to get energy at night and all this other stuff." So the the point is, you can't just snap your fingers and just not buy gas when that's the cornerstone of your energy policy. So, you know, everybody's, oh, you can buy it from the Americans. And I say, well, unfortunately, they don't have, they would need to build a thousand new tankers to basically supply just Germany, not the rest of Europe, with the gas that they're getting from Russia now. Uh, They don't have a thousand new tankers. They can't build a thousand new tankers tomorrow. Uh, And if they did that, they would basically be doing all kinds of bad things to the economy because they have to send those tankers back and forth across the Atlantic and spend a lot of money in diesel and everything else to actually push those tankers across. And the diesel's short. And the other point is that, you know, it's a question of increase of supply. Saudi Arabia and Russia are the only two countries that can turn a tap and significantly increase the supply that they're already providing. America exports oil, but America can't turn on a tap and say, we're now going to export 50% more oil, right? They don't have the capacity to generate that much additional energy that quickly. They could eventually do it if they do fracking and various other things, uh, open up new fields, whatever. But all of this takes time. It's not something that can be done instantly. And the Germans, who are very sensible and have one of the best economies in the world, they're sitting there going, well, how are we going to run our factories? and heat our houses uh, where our grandmothers are sitting there shivering in winter if we don't have gas. Uh, if we have a gas from somewhere else, maybe we could do something. Maybe we could get gas from Iran, which has been sanctioned and, and uh, blocked uh, from selling the, the, the amount that they have. Uh, that would certainly help, but there's no way to get the gas from Iran to where it's needed just by flipping a switch right you you need either the ships or you need other pipelines and pipelines need to be built so you know the the whole strategy for energy which is one of the two things food and energy are the two things you can't do without it, it depended on russia and now we're you know going to turn off the taps great we, we've switched off nord stream 2 i note that we haven't touched nord stream 1 or the other three major pipelines because Nord Stream 2 hadn't been switched on yet. So all they've done is say, hey, we're not going to switch on the new one, right? Right. But right now, we're seeing jumps of 50 cents in the price of of gas at the pump. Uh, The gas price has more than doubled in the last year. And this is inflicting serious economic pain on households, but more importantly, on industry.
0: Yeah, it's getting crazy everywhere. So I think uh, our Italian truckers are on strike for four days this week and they're striking about, uh, obviously, fuel prices. So I'm not sure how that's going to impact us. About 85% of Italy's food is, uh, is on those trucks. So, But you 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 understand about the gas price because you've worked on some projects. Um, what, about, what about the VAT?
1: It's kind of a, a twisted thing, right? The, the, there's a number of issues if we want to get into the energy thing. Uh, first of all, when you go to the pump in Italy, and I'm not sure about everywhere else, but certainly not in Dubai, but In Italy, if you look at the price sticker at the pump, at least 80% of that price is tax. The government uses tax to discourage people from driving too much because they want to avoid the greenhouse gas problem, and you know they're just trying to convince people to be frugal with energy. So they tax the pump quite heavily because they don't want people doing joyrides and just driving for the hell of it and wasting it. And and you know there've been serious policy, government policy to improve house insulation. You know, everybody in Italy is trying to save energy as much as they can. And the tax was a a method in peaceful times to ensure that, you know, that everybody was encouraged financially to use as little as possible. Great. So the tax is huge. The other issue with it is that the price of electricity in Italy and most of the rest of Europe is directly related to the price of natural gas. And that's not necessarily a valid link. It just happens to be the way the markets have been set up. So the electricity companies can increase the price of electricity because the price of gas has gone up. And the electricity, for example, where, we're, where we are is all hydro. It's, it's, it's made by hydroelectric. So it has nothing to do with gas, but it, the, the price is coupled. So the quasi-monopolies that are the electricity companies have the right to raise the price of electricity in line with the price of gas. And that is another ridiculous thing that needs to be changed rapidly and which the government could do relatively quickly to try and avoid the energy
0: crisis. Hey, Francis, let me cut in. Um, you're taking off for Turkey for a couple of weeks. So, uh, so hey, let's let's talk Turkey and, uh, and check out their perspective, your perception on their perspective.
1: Yeah, well, Turkey isn't really playing much of a role at the moment. They're obviously observing with interest because they're quite close to the conflict. You know, the entire southern shore of the Black Sea is Turkey. So, uh, you know, right across the sea, you've got Ukrainian uh, city of Maripol and Odessa are both getting bombed and, you know, the terrible thing. And Turkey controls the Bosphorus or the Dardanelles, which means that they can allow or disallow military warships from entering the Black Sea. That was formally recognized in something called the Montreux Treaty around about the First World War was was codified. So Turkey has exercised its rights under the Montreux Treaty to limit access to the Black Sea for combatant vessels, meaning that the Russian Navy cannot send additional forces to the Black Sea. And I believe neither can NATO. So Turkey is playing a neutral role in this and saying we're going to limit the, the traffic that goes through here. But the Montreux Treaty forbids Turkey from blocking access to naval vessels' home ports. And the Russian Navy is based mostly in Sevastopol, which is in the Black Sea. So Russia's already got most of its ships that it's going to send there already there. So it's kind of a gesture rather than anything concrete. But Turkey is uh, you know a good mediator. It's got good relations with both Ukraine and Russia. And it isn't hysterically, you know, go running around trying to block everything Russian that they can find, you know, throwing uh, rocks through the house of pierogi restaurants or whatever they're doing in other places. They're just basically sitting there. They regret the situation. They're just watching what happens. And Erdogan, who is pretty autocratic, he's not very democratic, but he is very strong, right? He's not going to take anybody else's quote unquote pressure to help him decide what Turkey's going to do. Turkey will do whatever Turkey thinks it should do, regardless of what anybody else says. So that's uh, that's where Turkey sits. I
0: was listening to the radio this morning and I heard an Englishman say today about the Chinese: they are the distilled essence of self-interest. He could have been talking about Boris Johnson, but apparently he was talking about China.
1: Well, China, China is all about trade. Right? China is one of the most peaceful nations on earth. Yes, they're building up their military now, but what China really doesn't like is. Being bullied by the United States and its allies who are continuously needling, right? We want you to do this. Therefore, we're going to basically make an alliance. We're going to get the Australians who are not to go and build submarines. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what they're doing. They're trying to encircle China. The reason the Americans are trying to encircle China is because China's economy is going so gangbusters well that they're now posing a threat to topple America. From you know, the head of the pack, right? Reserve and this is, this is historically something that you know is going to happen unless there is a, another World War III, because China has you know so many more people. <laughs> so if you've got so many more people and you've worked on education and healthcare and infrastructure, then eventually they will be able to outproduce less people, right? I mean, it's more people working means more stuff. So economically. Uh, China is catching up, and they're short of raw materials, and they get a lot of their raw materials from Russia, which is the biggest source of raw materials in the world. And they're not going to sacrifice their raw material needs in order to save Ukraine. They don't want the war because they don't want war anywhere because they prefer to trade. But they're going to say, hey, we're going to keep buying from the Russians, and we'll keep buying from the Ukrainians, and we'll sell stuff to both sides. If they want to buy our stuff, we're happy to do it. We're, We're neutral. We're basically not going to tell them what to do. We can deplore it, but we're not going to interfere. And unless China does join the economic sanctions, the economic sanctions the West is imposing on Russia are unlikely to work because Russia can sell their goods to China. And China will buy any amount of goods the Russians make. If, uh, If the West doesn't buy Russian gas, China will buy it. So they will always find a ready market for their raw materials. They may need to figure out how to deliver it. They may need to expand a pipeline going east instead of the one that went to the European Union. But they will figure out how to get where they need to be. And they've already figured out how to do business and avoid the swift block on financial transactions. China has a a, a rival system. Uh, The Russians are all signing up to it. And in fact, other countries that don't want to be part of What I'll call the American bloc are basically saying, you know, maybe we should sign up too. You know, we're in SWIFT, but we should sign up with the Chinese as well. Because if you have two, then in case somebody decides to blockade us, uh, we still have an alternative to get our money in and out. And China has an economy big enough that it can actually support being essentially isolationist from the rest of the world, right? And, you know, the Africans aren't going to not buy Chinese stuff. (laughs) Uh, no matter what uh, the U.S. says, because they need it, right? So I think what we're seeing, it's eroding America's leadership that it got after the Second World War in control of the fi- of the global financial system. It, it's eroding. It's not gone. America is clearly the undisputed leader of the financial system. But countries like Russia, who feel under existential threat, they're like, we are going to make the effort to actually find an alternative that isn't going to get blocked by the Americans for political purposes. Um, You know, trade is trade and politics is politics, two separate things. Certainly the Chinese believe that. So it's a very interesting development. Um, It's changed. We have seen no real threat to American leadership uh, over the last 60 years since the Second World War. And now we're seeing some signs that it's gonna be a multipolar world. No one's gonna give up on America. But no one's going to make it exclusive. We depend on you to do everything. Even the European Union has their own stuff going. The French are using this crisis to beef up European security. Um, The Germans and French and everybody else are going to use this crisis to beef up our energy dependence and make sure that no matter what happens outside of us, we're not going to get screwed because other people are are causing problems, right? It's like we're going to be independent of the United States. We're going to be independent of Russia and their oil. We're going to be independent of China. We'll be able to run our continent independently of everybody else. And we'll make our own decisions of whether we should embargo or do whatever we're going to do and not be forced into it by somebody else. And that's a, that's a super interesting development for those of us that follow the EU. I think it's uh, it's maybe the most interesting thing that's happened.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. I was listening to The New, the new Abnormal with Molly Jungfatz. He's sort of the... Uh the media darling of the moment, writer for uh, The Atlantic and Vogue. And she didn't understand why it was only the French speaking with Putin. And I just, I, she had no concept that the uh, the French here uh, are known for their diplomatique and the different roles that uh, different countries play. But then, of course, why should I be surprised? Not everyone understands and appreciates the EU as much as we do. The French don't like Macron, right?
1: But Macron is a pretty good president. Uh, if you look at achievements he irritates people because they call him Jupiter sitting on his throne. He doesn't bring people with him when uh, when he makes policy decisions that are unpopular. Okay. But he's not in any way stupid, right? That guy knows what he's doing. He okay. is, France is uh, the military power in the European Union, the, the nuclear power. And they're independent. You know, they, they insist on making all their own gear. So they don't rely on American 35s, they have their own aircraft, they have their own aircraft carrier, they have their own nuclear missile. Everybody else buys America, right? France is, is very much a, still a player. Uh, they have bases all over the world uh, because they have colonies still all over the world. Not so much colonies, yeah. but the uh, département d'outre-mer, which means uh, parts of France that are scattered in the Pacific. And so France is, France is a strong uh, nation there. And Italy, of course, has draghi. who was in charge of the European Central Bank and understand the economy maybe better than anybody. And they're sitting there going, you know, the European rules on spending made sense when they were implemented because they wanted to make sure people weren't just throwing money away. But the COVID crisis, the banking crisis in two thousand and eight, this crisis with the Ukraine, the energy crisis, the global climate crisis there's a lot of crises that are happening that require you know different thinking on economic uh, investment especially the climate crisis the climate crisis requires now to invest in changing the energy mix so that we're less dependent on Russia but also so that we're less dependent on carbon based energy mixes so that we can actually face the future together. But that requires lots of money spent now in order to get the benefit in the future. And that kind of investment should not be subject to the percentage rule that somebody had a very simplistic rule. You're not allowed to have more deficit than 3% above your GDP. That's not smart when you have external crises that are not necessarily of your making, uh, which require investment to get out of. So Macron and Draghi are in lockstep on this, and they are the two smartest economists in the European Union as leaders. And Scholz is also an economy minister. Uh, He was uh, the finance minister for Merkel, so he also gets this. And it's likely that they will browbeat the other European Union members into relaxing the rules. Under certain circumstances, they still can't get away with spending money wherever they want, but they need to change the rules so that they make more sense. And they're going to do that. They're also going to, Germany's already recognized the need for joining France and beefing up their military by making an extraordinary increase in their spend. And the end result is we see a Europe that is more united. It was more united by Brexit. Now it's more united because of the Ukraine crisis. And the climate change crisis is uh, everyone's awake to. It. So what we're seeing is the evolution of Europe, it's becoming more and more its own superpower.
0: What, what was Boris Johnson's latest thing? He was trying to uh, put forth this a a six-point bullet plan that did. thankfully they are no longer part of the EU.
1: It was a very funny sketch from uh, yes minister, uh, but uh, the English foreign policy for centuries has been stay united at home and make sure everybody is divided abroad. So they've always played European powers off against each other. Uh, you know, they would start, they'd ride, they would fight France, they would, partnered with Germany. Then Germany got strong, they partnered with France. They they partnered with anybody to basically keep the whole mix uh, going, because that kept them away from England. So, you know, I I feel that this is now something everybody's wise to, and leaving the European Union has has left them diminished in terms of their ability to actually influence uh, the direction that the European Union is going. You know, they left. They insisted that it was a terrible place, and that they, everybody would be better off out there, and that you know it would be great if everybody left. But now, uh, Ukraine has asked to join. Georgia has asked to join. Moldova has asked to join. The Serbians are all, and, and, and the Balkans are all uh, clamoring to join. Uh, European Union has no shortage of people wanting to join it, and they all understand uh, the unity that the European Union is now imposing. Even the Poles are beginning to think about whether they really want to challenge uh, EU unanimity on fiscal matters and and military matters, because they're also next to Russia. And let's face it, they've watched uh, the Americans, you know, encourage Georgia. They've watched the Americans encourage Ukraine. And they probably feel they have more chance of getting the Germans and French to defend them than having the Americans do it, although I'm sure the Americans would come if it was a NATO. But, you know, America's a long way away. And every time they make a decision to help somebody a long way away, they have to justify it to their voters and their voters have their own problem. Whereas here in Europe, you know, if Poland were to go under, it would dramatically affect the economy of of Italy and and France and Germany and so forth and so on. So nobody here would find it in any way weird to, to basically defend other European Union nations. So, you know, that was the point of the European Union. We are stronger together. So, you am know, I'm, I'm encouraged by this, and I, I wish it wouldn't have taken this Ukrainian crisis uh, to make it happen.
0: If only we could get Zelensky and Putin in a room. If only we could get Russia and Ukraine to to meet, because they're the only two that can really and truly solve the problem.
1: Yeah, you know, if they if they would lock Putin and Zelensky in a room and take away their cell phones. <laughs> Okay, then Putin wouldn't be hearing all kinds of bullshit about how well it's going for Russia. And Zelensky wouldn't be hearing all kinds of bullshit about how he's going to get supported by any day now we're going to send the troops or the aircraft or anything else. At the end, I think he gets that nobody in NATO is going to risk World War III to help him. Everyone's sympathetic. We're letting his refugees come in and and work. And and we're we're, we're very sympathetic. You know, we feel really bad for that but we're not going to send our military to kick the Russians out. So as soon as he realizes that, he needs to consider whether accepting the, the fact that the Donbass and Crimea are not under his control and having the Russians stop destroying the rest of his stuff and get a whole bunch of reconstruction money from the EU, which isn't going to get blown up by the Russians. Yeah, he'll get into the EU. He should focus on fixing the Ukrainian economy. Eventually, those other places may also join the EU once they realize how well the Ukraine would do inside the EU. But that's decades away. That's not going to happen tomorrow. So just do what's right for your existing citizens that you control and stop them getting bombed. But, you know, the Ukrainians are proud. They're magnificent, really. Uh, They're fighting for their country. Uh, I, I totally get why they're doing that. But at the end of the day, you need to make peace with your neighbors if you're going to become part of the European Union. No one's going to make you join when you're in a war.
0: Well, I think we've covered that. Um, Francis, is there anything else you'd like to say? Slava Ukraini. Well, we're just going to have to hope. We'll have to wait and see. But hey, in the meantime, please check out baileyalexander.com for our podcasts, posts, little films. And speaking of cultural realities, there's my book, which is called, my first book, which is called A European Odyssey. How a Boxer's Daughter Found Grace, which allows the reader to play detective and travel along with me uh, when we were truly nomadic, when we were truly living a nomadic lifestyle. My book is full of cultural realities, as is my next book, which is called Once Upon a Time in Loa where the reader gets to enter a galaxy of talent, as I've interviewed 12 Piemontese, 12 people who produce some of Italy's finest products. And contrary to today's podcast, I promise it will restore the faith as I explore Italy's northern region of Piemonte. Okay, so I think that's enough for now. Thank you so much for listening. Arrivederci from Lake Garda.